This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. We have our first guest on the line with us, and she is Christina Caramo. Christina, thanks for being our guest. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me on. I really appreciate it. As I understand it, Christina, you are not only a candidate for uh, Secretary of State uh, via the Republican nomination next year, but at this point, uh, you're the only person from Michigan to make the trip to Maricopa County, Arizona, to see firsthand how Arizona's audit of the 2020 election is being conducted. But before we get into that, let me just ask you for your background background uh, for our listeners. Just tell us exactly who you are, where you came from, why you're doing this. Yeah, this is an excellent question. So I'm from South Oakland County. I'm currently an instructor at Wayne County Community College. I've been doing that for the past uh, six years. I was educated. I got my bachelor's at um, Oakland University in communications, and I have my master's from Biola University's Talbot School of Theology in Christian Apologetics. So I have been politically active for some time. Um, In 2016, really, I got very active in the 14th Congressional District where I live. Um, I co-hosted a show called Right on 14th. So I've always had a very uh, much of a passion for media, uh, making sure that conservative perspectives are represented. I'm a state committee woman, actually serving my second term. I'm also a precinct delegate. So I've been active for some time, and one of the really important things for me in the 2020 elections was to get on the ground on the on the most critical level, which is really those door to door door knocking, you know, making phone calls, you know, connecting with your neighbors and people face to face, and that's how I got involved, being interested specifically in election day operation. So I was a poll watcher in 2020. Um, I attempted to become a poll worker and the city of Detroit because um, the TCF Center is the largest ballot processing facility in the state of Michigan. So that was really, really important to be a part of that process. Unfortunately, the city was not effective, if you will, and not fair in their hiring practice and didn't hire a sufficient amount of Republicans, and I was one of the people caught in that web. So I became a poll challenger. Um, I was there actually at the TCF Center Tuesday and Wednesday for a total of 37 hours. I witnessed multiple statutory violations. Uh, they're, they're not questionable whether it's debatable whether these were statutory violations. They were clear as day statutory violations that showed me that there are individuals who purposely, and, and this isn't a mistake, these people purposely broke election law. I submitted a sworn affidavit. I testified before the Senate. And I'm a believer that when you see a problem, it's imperative to fix it. And that's what I intend to do as Michigan's next Secretary of State. Well, Christina Caramo, uh, we hear a lot about forensic audits, and supposedly they've had one in Arizona. You went down there. Uh, What did you see, and how could it be applicable here in Michigan? Yeah, and one of the things I want people to understand, first and foremost, the goal for forensic audit in the state of Michigan is not about making sure my guy won and your guy lost. The goal is to check for integrity in our elections. We know our election systems are highly unsecured. So we want to make sure that our election results 
actually represents the will of the people and not any type of election misfeasance or malfeasance. So that's why this audit in Arizona is so important because it actually examines the process. You know, Secretary Benson, you know, she goes and says that she conducted audits. But for example, in one of the, the worst examples of this in Barry County, she only examined four ballots. So if you were going to do a real audit, you would examine each step of the process to make sure it was followed according to the law and the rule, the prom and the rules that the Secretary of State promulgated for clerks and election workers to follow. So in Arizona, they examine every ballot is examined by three people. <laughs> okay. So that can't be problematic. Also, there is a camera directly over these individuals to make sure that they are accurately recording what they saw and they're following all the rules that they're supposed to. They can't talk to each other. Every ballot is examined under a microscope. There's, they're looking for creases in the ballots because between 1.8 and 1.9 million people in Maricopa County voted absentee. So you want to make sure that those ballots have creases as anything folded should. Additionally, they want to make sure that human beings mark the ballots and not computers. And they were, other, they were looking for other ID markers in the ballots. So there's cameras directly over the pods. There's cameras kind of like an eagle eye view to make sure everyone had, uh, conducting things per the law. Also, there's absolute chain of custody when handling any uh, documents relating to the elections. Also, the ballots are not being handled are locked under, they're under surveillance. Uh, 2,000 volunteers, all residents of Maricopa County. And that component is really important because these are the folks who actually have skin in the game. These are the residents of this county. Uh, additionally, they all had to vote in the 2020 election. So, and they also are looking at the machines because in the state of Michigan, our machines do connect, our tabulation machines, excuse me, do connect to the internet to send vote tallies. They use cellular modems. So that opens the door for manipulation. So, you know, in Arizona and hopefully in Michigan, you want to make sure that these results weren't manipulated. And, and, and our desire to have an audit isn't based on a hunch. They're based on the testimonies of many people across the state of Michigan, people who were election volunteers or worked in the elections who saw things that violated election law. And they happened on, as a pattern. And it happened enough for people to feel that our election results could potentially have been compromised and the will of the voters have been ignored and snuffed out by illegal activities. And, and this isn't just about the presidential election. In fact, it isn't about it at all. It's about us. We are a republic. It's about making sure that our representation is protected in this great republic. Christina, you know, we could keep talking about uh, election law, and it, it's critically important, one of the two important functions of a secretary of state. But the other one is driver's licenses, motor vehicle mm -hmm. transactions. And most recently, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson's been under fire about uh, these so-called branch offices and all the problems there, people having a tough time just getting basic routine uh, updates uh, on expired licenses plates, driver's license, and so forth. What do you think about all that? You know, one of the things I'm really confident that if I'm elected to Secretary of State is that we will be able to establish a process that will serve the citizens. My background in customer service that I actually did for three years um, has shown me how to provide customers with excellent services. And one of the problems with a lot of government agencies, because citizens need these services, the need for uh, being accommodating and friendly and, and efficient is lost. 
I find it very disappointing that Secretary Benson refers to the walk-in system as a taken number system. It's really insulting because it ignores the concerns of Michiganders. She acts as though there's only two options, either a walk-in system or online appointment system when we can have both. You have many people who lack internet access or people who have certain disabilities that make it difficult for them to log in online, say issues with their hands, or people who struggle to use the internet that makes it difficult for them to make those online appointments. Additionally, for her to have this system where a person has to look at 8 a.m. or noon to see if there's a walk-in appointment available for them that day, it makes Michiganders have to participate and some kind of rat race. That's not how a Secretary of State should conduct her branch offices. She needs to have both walk-in and appointment options to be accommodating for Michiganders. Additionally, there needs to be a return of control to the branch managers that way they can run their branches with consideration of the various needs of all communities and townships and counties. So I really would encourage people to check out my website, ChristinaForSOS.com, to get more involved. Christina, you've done a great job of going over the two big responsibilities for the Secretary of State, motor vehicle transactions and election law. Sounds like you think Jocelyn Benson has flunked the test so far, but we can't talk about it anymore. We're out of town. Thank you, Christina Caramo, candidate to be Michigan's next Secretary of State, for being our guest. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me again. Anybody can check out the website, Christina, Christina with a K, for SOS.com to learn more about our campaign. Thank you so much. We'll be back in a minute with still more. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us Beth LeBlanc, and she is a political and government reporter for the Detroit News in the Lansing Bureau. And Beth wrote a great article in the Detroit News this week about Unlock Michigan 2.0. And I want to ask Beth LeBlanc about what she found out in the process of looking into this because it really hasn't gotten much attention. So maybe you could start us out Beth, by just uh, reminding everybody about uh, Unlock Michigan 1.0, <laughs> which uh, the Supreme Court has now said the Board of State Canvassers must certify the petitions and send to the legislature. And no sooner has that been done uh, than Unlock Michigan announces, well, we're going to launch another petition drive. Call it 2.0 if you want to. Um, what's going on here anyway? This is really complex. Yeah, so, so you'll remember last summer, uh, Unlock Michigan launched a petition drive to challenge the executive orders that were currently in place under a 1945 law um, that basically gave the, the governor the authority to issue these executive orders in a time of emergency, um, like a global pandemic. Um, and they, Unlock Michigan, they wanted to repeal that law so that um, it couldn't be used again in the future and that the governor couldn't issue executive orders under um, that law. So they gathered a lot of signatures. They turned in um, more than 500,000 signatures in October on the same day the Supreme Court ruled 
that that law actually was unconstitutional because it was an unconstitutional delegation of legislative authority. Um, but, you know, at that point earlier in the day, they had submitted the signatures. It started going through the process where the Bureau of Elections starts to screen a sample of the signatures. Um, anyways, fast forward months later, and uh, the Bureau of Elections recommends to the Board of State canvassers that they approve this petition initiative. Um, and, of course, from the beginning, all my intention is not to put this on the ballot. It is to give it to the GOP-led legislature and have them enacted into law, which avoids a veto from the governor. So, essentially, what they'll be repealing, if and when the legislature votes on this, is a law that the Michigan Supreme Court has already said is unconstitutional, um, but it just takes it off the books completely. So that is kind of where 1.0 stands right now. It's waiting for a Board of State canvassers meeting to be certified, and then we'll go to the legislature. In the meantime, Unlock Michigan has launched this, as you're saying, that Unlock Michigan 2.0, a second petition initiative, because if you'll recall in October when the Supreme Court overturned the governor's um, executive authority, she began to issue epidemic orders under her Department of Health and Human Services. And that authority lies in the public health code in times of like an epidemic or pandemic. They can issue these emergency orders. Um, they're slightly limited compared to the executive orders that the, the governor had, but they're, they're otherwise pretty similar. Um, so what Unlock Michigan is proposing is essentially to add language into the public health code that governs these epidemic orders that would require that after 28 days, the governor would have to go to the legislature for an extension of those epidemic orders and that authority to issue those. Um, so they said they were going to submit the, the language as to form to the Bureau of Elections this week and then start collecting signatures. And they hope that they said before the end of the year they'd like to turn in this petition as well, the the 2.0 petition. Yeah, well, they need, they may need all the time uh, they can get to get this uh, certified uh, and sent to the legislature because this last one took the longest I can remember. Uh, it's been like eight months since they submitted the signatures on 1.0, and here we are in June, and the Supreme Court is saying this has got to be allowed by the Board of State canvassers and sent to the legislature. So they're going to repeat the whole process. And I don't really have any doubt, Beth LeBlanc, that they're going to be successful in getting the signatures. I mean, they got a record number in a record short amount of time last year on 1.0. And now for 2.0, I bet you they're going to do it again. Uh, so what do you see going forward? Yeah, so you know it is it is a different situation than last year. So it should be interesting to see how things play out. So last year, a lot of these signatures they collected at protests against um, you know the governor's shutdown orders. They collected them at campaign rallies, at gatherings. But of course, they were also pretty limited um, in other options that they would usually use. So there were no festivals, there were no parades last year that they could collect signatures at. Yeah, they still found these opportunities at, at protests and rallies to collect them. I think the other challenge that they might face is that there's not the immediate threat 
of epidemic or shutdown orders that there were last year that were spurring so much enthusiasm for this. And actually, I, I talked to one of the spokespeople for, for the group, and, and he said he didn't anticipate that being an issue because he said there was so much fur over the governor using the health orders last year um, to kind of get around the Supreme Court decision um, that that he felt like that will that is lingering and that will drive people to to sign these moving forward too. Of course, with the you're right that last year the the Bureau of Elections review of the signatures took a very long time, much longer than the usual. I think this time around there won't be as much of an excuse because there isn't the 2020 election that they'll be having to deal with um, when and if these signatures are eventually turned in. Well, not only that, but um, seriously, if, if um, the Supreme Court has ruled that this ought to go before the legislature, I would think it's going to be pretty hard for the Board of State canvassers and the Secretary of State to hold it up a second time uh, as much as they did the first time, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I think the Supreme Court decision was pretty limited to the action that the Board of State canvassers took Um so when they met to certify this, they two of the Democratic canvassers uh, voted against it, and essentially the board deadlocked. And the Supreme Court, as they've done in many other situations where the board deadlocked, said, you have no reason to deadlock. You need to vote to move this through. So their decision was pretty limited to the Board of State canvassers. They didn't really weigh in on the delay that the Bureau of Elections went through, although that was an issue that went through court as well. There's one other big question remaining, in my mind at least, and that is some legal scholars and former judges, we had one on this program a year ago, a former chief judge of the State Court of Appeals, have said, There is language in the state constitution that seems to give the governor broad enough authority that it could, uh, a governor could decide, you know, I've still got the authority in the constitution to heck with these statutes. What do you think? We don't have much time. I have not heard that one before. Um, That should be interesting. I guess the next time we have a pandemic, we'll find out. Well, Beth LeBlanc, you've done a great job of describing the situation right now. It's constantly evolving. It never seems to end. But Beth LeBlanc of the Detroit News, you've done a great job with this. And I know you're going to keep following it. Keep us posted. We'll get you back in the future to make further commentary. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and we've got still another guest on another topic. And this is Jim Kurtzner, and he's an investigative reporter, general assignment reporter for WXYZ-TV in the metro Detroit area. Jim Kurtzner, thanks for being our guest. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, I want to ask you, uh, some stuff happened this week, particularly with regards to the COVID-19 epidemic and all the executive orders that Governor Whitmer has issued. And I think you were in on some kind of a press conference she had this week. Uh, But she kind of uh, mixed it up a little bit. She didn't uh, say 
maybe what you expected her to. And then next thing we know, boom, she says next Tuesday uh, she's going to lift everything. What's going on here? It was very interesting, very curious this week. She was in Grand Rapids on Wednesday at an event and hinted, responding to a reporter's question, that the lifting of the restrictions would be happening soon. That was on Wednesday. So Thursday she was here in Detroit and did an event that was not about COVID. It was to recognize uh, frontline workers, particularly in nursing homes and healthcare an event to uh, promote the uh, pending bill for them to get some hero pay. She didn't bring up the uh, restrictions at all, but all of the media from Detroit were there. And as she left and walked about a half a block to her vehicle, the uh, press group uh, turned into kind of a scrum and were (laughs) asking her about this. Yeah. And um, like, so, Governor, when is this going to happen? All she would say is coming soon. And as she got into her vehicle, I said, why don't you tell us something um, substantive? I didn't use exactly that word rather than just continuing to tease the state of Michigan. And I did put it that way. (laughs) She got in the vehicle and drove away. She didn't answer any questions. And then two and a half hours later, we get the email news release drop, if you will, spelling it all out, that everything gets lifted on June 22nd, and uh, so I did several stories on this on Friday night, and I liked it, likened it to the end of Prohibition. We're finally back to normal. <laughs> Jim, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. I mean, I think you put the pressure on her, and I think she kind of collapsed once she got in the car and said, Kurtzner is on my case. I've got to get the news out pronto. What do you think? Um, I, I, this was such an, no, I I don't want to take that much credit, but I appreciate that. This was a very extensively written news release. So they didn't knock this out in, in a couple of hours. In fact, one of the questions I threw at her during this short walk was I said, what needs to happen here? Do you just need to put some legalese on paper for this to happen? She kind of shot me a look and didn't, you know, take the bait, didn't respond. (laughs) Well, I mean, what is the reaction in your estimation in the metro Detroit area, and for that matter, throughout the state, about the way the governor has handled all this? You've been at this longer than I have here in the state of Michigan. I've only been here since 1983. I don't know exactly (laughs) when you started. I believe it was in the 70s. Am I correct? (laughs) Well, I started something in the 70s, but it isn't doing what you're doing. You have been doing it even longer than I've been doing it at what you're doing right now. Yeah. Okay. So to go back to answer your question, I don't understand why when a governor is lifting all of the restrictions, When we've made it to this point that we can say everything is safe enough now that we can return back to 100% normalcy after 15 months, why she wouldn't want to do that with with an event uh, in the media, put her face on it, uh, her voice in it, and proudly make this proclamation. I don't, I, I'm befuddled. I don't understand why she didn't do that other than, and I can only speculate, that she has been the one to say we will do this when we reach the so-called herd immunity at 70% vaccination rate. We know that if we get there at all, it's still going to be months down the road because everybody who's wanted to get vaccinated pretty much has. Well, that's the question. I mean, 
why is she lifting everything in one fell swoop after all this long time, 15 months, when she claims she's relying on the science and she says we've got to prove we're at 70 percent uh, herd immunity vaccinations and all that stuff, where we have not actually reached that point yet. We're on the road, and obviously the caseload has dropped dramatically here. But you you could make an argument that despite the fact that maybe in many people's opinions she's kept all of these restrictions on too long, maybe she's now being too hasty in yeah, I, announcing yeah, this. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I'm, she she could take some of that criticism, sure, because you're going to be criticized with whatever you do in this situation. I, I think your instincts are correct, though. I don't think she wanted to have to take the questions, and I'm speculating now, but she didn't want to have to take the questions. Why now? What is the difference of nine days moving it up to June 22nd rather than July the 1st? She did an event in South Lansing the first week of June, when the first wave of restrictions were lifted, and I asked her at that event, why don't you lift everything now? Uh, if the COVID numbers and cases shoot back up, then you can reimpose the restrictions, but open everything up now. And she pretty much answered, that's not a good idea. We're going to stay the course. We're going to stick with the July 1st date. But now here we are moving it up nine days earlier. Do you think that she held it off until next Tuesday rather than doing it immediately if she's going to do it this way at all because of maybe Juneteenth or because of Father's Day? That could be too. Um, I don't think she articulated the exact reason for the timing. Uh, that's a good question, but she has moved it up, and I think the majority of Michiganders are celebrating it. Well, of course, for a long time, I mean, her supporters have argued uh, Gretchen Whitmer has kept us safe. Uh, this is what she's tried to do, and nobody can do it perfectly, but she's tried to do it according to science and data and statistics. But it seems to me the way she's behaved, not just in the past week or even the past month or two, but even you could say starting in January when her director of health and human services quit peremptorily, uh, she's been kind of indicating that maybe it's not based on <laughs> science uh, or at least biological or epidemiological science. It's based on political science. What do you think about that? That's the, that's the million-dollar question I think everybody has been asking all of these months. I watched the, the hearing, the oversight committee hearing with Robert Gordon when he came in to testify under subpoena, and they never really asked him that million-dollar question. Why did you resign? What were the disagreements or singular disagreement you had with the governor that caused her to ask you to submit your resignation and then to get your golden parachute on your way out the door? They never <laughs> asked that question. Well, I mean— She's got a hope right now that all of a sudden there isn't a resurge of some point, because if there is, uh, what is she going to try and do? Go back and use the public health department again to issue more orders? I think she will. I don't think she'll hesitate to do that. I think uh, she's following uh, the trends right now. New York City has opened back up. California is opening back up. Right to the south of us, the state of Ohio opened everything up on June the 2nd. All restrictions were lifted in Ohio. 
So I think she had to follow the trend, and I think she does, uh, rightfully so, have some standing, if you will, that if the COVID numbers shoot back up, that if things open up too much, she needs to reimpose some restrictions. I think uh, people will understand that to an extent. Now, you're going to find people all across the spectrum, like you said. People think she's done a great job keeping us safe. People think she's had restrictions on too long. I'm in Macomb County, where there's a group of restaurant and bar owners who have a pending lawsuit against her to receive damages they say are in the millions for the shutdowns and the restrictions. And that's still uh, active. That's still in the courts. Wow. Well, listen, Jim Kirstner, you've done a great job of explaining as well as can be explained the governor's mindset this past week and the way she has made this announcement about lifting all these restrictions. Thank you so much, Jim Kurtzner, uh, investigative reporter for WXYZ TV in Southeast Michigan. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with another great guest, and she is Jordan Hermony. She's a policy reporter for Gongwer News Service in Lansing. Before I get to questions of the day, I just want to ask her a little bit about her fascinating background. I mean, she was editor-in-chief of CMU Life. Uh, at Central Michigan University. And then, if I'm not mistaken, she went to Moscow State University to get, I think, maybe a master's degree in political science. Uh, is that not, correct, Jordan Hermony? Not not my master's. Just finished up my undergrad over in Russia. But, yeah, did study for half a year at uh, Moscow State University, lived in Moscow, uh, learned Russian. It was quite the experience. <laughs> I bet it was. You were probably only a few blocks from Vladimir Putin. Did you see him walking around Red Square at all? We did not, <laughs> although we did get to visit the Kremlin, which is uh, very interesting. It is great architecture, lots of history there. Uh, it's like absolutely mind-blowing how old a lot of the stuff is over there. But Yeah. Well, listen, uh whole bunch of stuff going on in Michigan politics and government this week, as you know, starting with the governor's uh, announcement this week about COVID-19. How did you see that from your vantage point? Um, Well, yesterday she announced that she would be lifting the COVID-19 restrictions that have been imposed for about 15 months now. Um, That's going to be coming June 22nd. So this Tuesday, I believe, um, she basically said that because we have 60% of the state's uh, residents who are 16 and older vaccinated, or at least had their first COVID shot, um, those those uh, barriers that were going to be lifted uh, July 1st are now coming next week. So that is um, things like gyms, restaurants, bars, they'll be able to operate at full capacity. They haven't been able to do that since like March of last year. Um, Places like juvenile justice facilities, uh, those are going to be listing their orders that are like restriction orders. Um, basically, the state's going to be reopened for business starting next week. Were you surprised that she did this so peremptorily now this week? 
uh, after all this time and people demanding that she lift the orders and she was very coy and uh, would never give a definitive uh, deadline except the July 1st one, which she's now changed. What's your reaction to why she's doing this at the time she's doing it? Because 70 percent herd immunity uh, proven vaccine total inoculation has not been met yet. Yeah, that was their first. Uh, my back to normal plan was uh, that the state had to hit 70. Um, honestly, I think it's a mixture of a couple things. One, people do seem to be getting the vaccine. The vaccine uptake has increased recently. That I imagine she's kind of throwing a bone here saying that, you know, you've been doing so well, state residents in getting vaccinated, that maybe we can lift things a little bit early. Not to mention that the state's COVID uh, death and COVID hospitalization rates have been going and trending downwards. So when she made the announcement yesterday, she kind of hinted that because this seems to be a trend, uh, other states are opening up or lessening their restrictions earlier than they also planned as well, that it seems natural for Michigan to follow in suit. Yeah, you've been covering several other uh, important topics in the legislature, law enforcement reform and voting rights reform. How would you characterize what happened this week on those? So we'll start with uh, voting reform, if you are so inclined to see what happened more recently. So there's a 39-bill package that's in the Senate that was unveiled back in March. It to do a bunch of things um, regarding voting procedures, so things like allowing for early voting the Saturday prior to Election Day, um, increasing ballot drop box security, limiting the amount of time that those ballot drop boxes can be in use. So on Thursday, um, there were three bills uh, that were passed out of the Senate. Uh, It's the first of the package to actually move and debate over those three bills, one of which would require a person who applies for an absentee ballot to show some form of ID when getting that ballot. Um, And then the other two bills kind of help that initial bill in saying that if you don't have a voter ID, um, you will be given a provisional ballot, and that provisional ballot has to be turned in within six days following the election in order for your vote to count. So that passed out of the Senate this week. There was some really fiery debate on the floor over that. Um, Republicans basically saying that this was a really good move to be making and that, you know, you need ID for other things in life and Democrats basically saying that this was needlessly erecting hurdles that were going to put barriers up to voting access. Um, And it seems like this is going to be going over the house now and we can probably expect the same level of vigorous discourse over it. Yeah. Jordan Hermony, I just like to ask you, uh, there are so many bills in this election law reform package the Republicans introduced many of which, according to polls, are not very popular with the public. In other words, the public doesn't seem to support a lot of the things the Republicans want to do, but one that the public does support is voter ID, uh, photo ID. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think the Republicans have actually got a winning card there. They're playing, and yet the Democrats keep resisting it. And I think the Republicans may use this against Democrats next year in the election. What do you think? 
I mean, it certainly is possible. There's a Detroit Regional Chamber poll that just came out saying that about 80% of respondents do support requiring an ID to vote. But what Democrats keep falling back on is that sects of the population that are likely to vote Republicans, such as individuals who are older, they may not have an ID, so it's kind of like them shooting their own constituents in the foot in a way. Um, I really do wonder if this is going to be as big of a deal come, you know, the 2020 election or 2022 (laughs) election, um, because the attention span of the average voter is usually not very long. Um, So whether or not this will continue to be as big of a Trump card for Republicans coming in the coming months, um, that still kind of remains to be seen. But it definitely is probably their strongest of all of the bills in the package to continue to tout as saying, you know, people in the public really do support, you know, registered voters, citizens being able to vote and having to show your ID and able to do that. Okay, Jordan Hermony, what about law enforcement reform? What's going on there? So much like with the voting rights, there's been a series of bills that has been introduced. Um, They are looking to increase police transparency and accountability. And um, people who have introduced these bills, they're very emphatic that this is nothing at all to do with the national – I'm trying to think of a better word for it, but I guess the national movement for defunding the police. This has nothing to do with that. These are all bills that are um, looking to, you know, like I said, increase transparency. They want to have MCOLS, which is the Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards, uh, investigate deaths caused by officers. These bills seek to ban the use of chokeholds, except in instances of life and death. Um, they want to require that MCOLS um, have some sort of implicit bias, de-escalation training, behavioral training for officers. Um, Police do support this in theory. We had the Wayne County Sheriff's Office come before a Senate panel on Tuesday who basically said that he was in favor of the bills and of accountability for officers, but that they did have some concerns with definitions in the legislation not being so clearly defined. Um, Things like chokeholds that could mean different things for for different people or, or what use of force truly constituted. Um, They were also a little bit hung up on the idea of keeping sort of a rolling tally of if officers made a mistake um, in saying that, you know, a demerit shouldn't stay on an officer's record for years and years. They should be given some way of, you know, clearing their records similar to how individuals are being able to take advantage of expungements currently. Um, They're also not a fan of one of the bills, uh, Senate Bill 476, which allows individuals to file a complaint against officers um, anonymously. They argue that our current justice system is built on the ability to face your accuser in court and that officers should be allowed to do that as well. Okay, look, you've done a great job of running through three big issues, the COVID-19 restriction lifting and also law enforcement reform, voting right reform. Thank you so much, Jordan Hermony of Gongwa News Service in Lansing for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. We will be back next week with still more.